following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. Good morning. I'm going to read our passage this morning. Um, but before we kind of begin the passage, I, I just want to say, when you hear that phrase, even so, come, that means whether I'm ready or you're ready or not. And so Jesus is coming whether we're ready or not. Um, think about it. This is um, His coming back is the final event on the calendar, uh, his, his calendar to come. Um, so this could even be the last sermon you ever hear preached. Um, we have no idea. Uh, so I just want to be mindful of just that amazing song of being ready. So let's get ready. Uh, verse 33, this is Luke chapter 5, uh, verse 33 through 39. And they said to him, the disciples of John uh, the Baptist, they fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours they eat and they drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Um, take note of verse 34. We'll get to that. Verse 35. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken from them, and they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts a new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. Verse 38 but new, new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Verse 39, And no one, after drinking old wine, desires the new, for he says the old is good. Um, I believe in every word in this book. Inspired, infallible, the inerrant word of God. And um, I want to acknowledge the authority of his word this morning. Um, not every church preaches from this book, which is really tragic and sad. But I also want to acknowledge for the first time, um, at least in terms of the Gospels, in the New Testament, I want to acknowledge uh, publicly and give, give worship to the name that is above every name. King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, our beloved, our beloved bridegroom. Um, thinking about this sermon, I'm not concerned as much with how this sermon goes as I am with God doing his message in me, in his heart, or in my heart. And I'm not so concerned about the flow or how this message goes as I am that he's working in you, in us. Because otherwise, what's the point? It's just 
words and a message. And so I am praying that, you know, transformation is the aim of this sermon, but it's a long journey and it's worth every obedience step. And so I pray that we will walk out in obedience. This sermon has really challenged me uh, greatly. Um, I had a, this can sound a little strange, but on Friday night I was sleeping and I had a, um, this does not ever happen, but I had a little bit of a dream or almost sort of like a vision. And I was, um, singing these words, um, have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. And this is my prayer. Thou art the potter. I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, I am yielded and I'm still. And um, this dream I had, I just... I was just singing this song um, to God, just praying that he would have his way in me. Um, It was really, that was just the extent of the dream, Um, Friday night. And uh, Lord can vouch for this, but I woke up saying, I I don't know, it was like I had a song on my heart. Um, And it kind of, I was like, I don't recall ever hearing this song before um not saying i never have but i don't remember it but it sounded familiar and so i i googled it i looked it up and sure enough the song actually even exists (laughs) so i mean i didn't write it or nothing somebody else did but the song comes from 1907 it's like so strange, like 1907, I mean, that's well over 100 years ago. And and I, I don't know, I just can't say why, but God put a song I didn't really know on my heart and told me to share it. Um, and I looked up the song and I came to Jeremiah 18, 1 through 6. And it's Jeremiah 18, 1 through 6 that is the basis of the song. And as I looked up this passage, um, I was like, this is gold. This passage fits everything with this sermon. And, and I just was like, God's just giving me an introduction. I already had an introduction, but God gave me his introduction for this sermon. And I want to read Jeremiah 18, 1 through 6. The context is a potter's house. And I have up front here uh, some clay in the shape of a heart. Um, and I'm praying that God will mold and shape our hearts throughout this sermon. Jeremiah 18, 1 through 6. This is the word of the Lord that came from Jeremiah, from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. Verse 3. So I went down to the potter's house and saw him working at the wheel. So there's this potter at the potter's house working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred. It was broken in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it and and, uh, seeming what was best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah the prophet. He said, 
Verse 6. This is a great, you want a Bible verse to live by? This is it. Um, this Verse 6 is gold. Jeremiah said, or actually the potter said, Can I not do with you, Israel, as the potter does, declares the Lord? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. And I pray that that would be my prayer. I pray that that would be your prayer, that we would be his clay in his hands, Um, that God would mold and shape us and make us whatever he wants. And so this sort of cues up um, this passage that I want to get to with Luke Luke chapter 5. But there's sort of some things I want you to be thinking about as we're entering in, and really on the basis of Jeremiah 18. So when in and throughout this sermon, I want you to keep actively in your mind, there's really two parties. There's the party of people that are going to be asking a question of Jesus, and then there's Jesus. And Jesus is going to answer their question. But I want you to think in this passage Who's the potter? Who's the potter? And I want you also to think, who is the clay? Who's that moldable, shapeable clay? Or not moldable and shapeable? And for argument's sake, even think about, are the people asking the question, do they think they're the potter? So let's get into the passage. And I I think, too, with this sermon about God and how he has promised us, even in the Old Testament, he's promised us a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. The the letter of the law is is a heart of stone, and uh, God is wanting to give us a a moldable, shapeable heart of flesh. Um, there's a quote that I came upon um, that really has challenged me. It's by Burke Parsons. And it says, Much of my learning to follow Jesus is unlearning to follow myself. And I'll repeat that. Much of my learning to follow Jesus is unlearning to follow myself. And I can only preach from the choir here. Um, that can be the case with me a lot. All of us, I think, can resonate with that of just unlearning to follow Jesus um, uh, or learning to follow Jesus is to unlearn to follow myself. And this is kind of, I think, the case in this passage is some of the people, spoil alert, um, they need to unlearn how to follow themselves. So verse 33, and my sermon is called... um, keeping the main thing, Jesus, the main thing. That throughout this passage, Jesus is what it's all about. So verse 33, And they said to him, the disciples of of John, that we fast often and we offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and they drink. So that's quite an interesting question. It sounds a little bit um, uh, more than a question, that they're trying to actually make a statement. Um, But let's unpackage this question. Now, our passage is Luke. And Luke only uses the word they. Um, 
he says, they said to him. And then we have some clues, though, that um, the disciples of John, they fast often. Um, And we also have the disciples of the Pharisees. So it's really those two groups of people, the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist. Now, I can understand the Pharisees asking the question because we always want to take a verse in context. And if we look to the passage last week that Buck preached about, um, about Matthew being called as a disciple of Jesus, and there's a big, huge uh, celebration that, that is held for Jesus to honor him, and Matthew does this, and Matthew invites all his friends, and all of his friends are tax collectors too, and they're sinners, and they're all eating and drinking under Matthew's roof. And the Pharisees catch word about this, and I mean, they, they lose it. And so anyway, um, they're upset, saying, how can you eat with Pharisees, and, or with sinners and tax collectors? And I can understand... Um, I can understand that they have some concerns because Matthew, he's a traitor. I mean, he, he, uh, he, he, he is being paid by the Romans to extort his own people, the Jews. So I can understand that they have some angst about him. But at the same time, like, they're upset. And I just want to say, like, I've been over on this side of being a sinner and I have wanted to have that weight of sin taken off of my shoulders before I came to Christ. And I wanted to get over to the other side. And I'm just saying, though, I, want to, I really want to carefully take into context, at what point can sinners be able to transfer from here over to there? Okay, because that's, that's what it's all about. Is, is being forgiven, having newness of life, that's the gospel. And what I'm saying, though, is that religion, time and time again, man, man-made self-righteousness, works righteous, self-righteousness, it always leaves people over in this camp with no ability to climb up out of the pit, no ability to get over to where God wants them to be. So... I mean, here's, here's an idea, but Matthew has, has been called by Jesus. I, he left everything right then and there. He just left it all behind. That's kind of some more faith than maybe some of us in the room have had in our lifetime. He left it all. And so, you know, I, I want to pat Matt, Matthew, the, the disciple on the back, for just having that faith to just leave it all behind. I, I see that as repentance in a sense. And, and uh, I don't want us to miss sight of that because I've been on this side. I know all of us resonate that we were once sinners, right? Dead in our trespasses and sins. That's me. I read Ephesians 2, 1 every time. As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I remember reading that for the first time and I just said to myself, there was never a more true verse than that. I was dead. Absolutely dead. You wouldn't even recognize who, who, the life I was living, the person that I was. And God in one day transferred me from the kingdom of darkness 
into the kingdom of light, as he has done for many of you. And I, I just love that. So preach the gospel, you know. People, they, they are just desiring to be set free. And we need to, as the church, do that. Um, so anyway, there's a question that is posed. Now, um, another great thing is that sometimes when you're studying his word, and you can't get all of the details to understand the story. Keep in mind, with the Gospels, oftentimes, um, other writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they will also write about some of the stories. And the stories aren't always um, the same in every detail because they're writing to different audiences. It's the same event, they're just seeing it from different angles and adding some different details of, of what they saw. And what we can gather is more details to understand this passage by reading Matthew 9, 14 through 17, or Mark 2, 18 through 20, or Luke 5, 3 through 8. And uh, that's really some good inductive Bible study to keep, keep in our minds as we're trying to unpackage this text of, of some of the details in the the players in all of this. Now, I have been talking about the Pharisees a little bit, and I do want to kind of unpackage for you just a bit um, John the Baptist's followers. Now, the context for this passage is John the Baptist has been at this point, he's now been put into prison. So his followers, you know, I'm not, we don't know a lot of the details what kind of happened to them, um, but we should be shocked that in this passage here, John the Baptist's disciples are here asking the question with the Pharisees, which was kind of a little disturbing as I was studying this text to find these two camps kind of have a little bit of a merger because um, as you look at the Greek of what Luke is saying in his account, Luke is saying that both the Pharisees and John the Baptist pretty much were asking the question at the same time. And I don't know for sure, but I kind of think that maybe the Pharisees kind of had whispered into John the Baptist's followers' ear and got them all loaded up with works righteousness, with the law. And I do want to clarify really quickly I absolutely believe that the law of Moses, God's moral law, is good. Psalm 119 is, I think it's 179 verses that speak about how wonderful the law of God is. And I mean, I'll put it up in my notes if you really want it, Um, but I did a study on the law in in this sermon, and I'm not going to preach on it, but the law is good. It's just that the law has a different purpose than grace. The the law is God's righteous moral standard. It shows us how to relate to a holy God. Now, you might think that uh, when you hear things, and and it, it might sound like I'm talking negative about the law, I am not talking negative about the law. I stand on the law, and I, I say it's good. I'm just saying that we need to keep in context the new covenant. And the law had a purpose. Jesus did not abolish the law. And, and, and I want you to really embrace that. He came to fulfill the law. He perfectly lived out 
the righteous requirements that we should have lived and we don't. So the law is good. It's just the, by the, the deeds of the law, it says in Romans, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. So all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The law does what it should do, and it condemns those that are lawbreakers. I'm a lawbreaker today. But that doesn't mean that the law is not good. The law calls out my sin, as it should. It's a teacher, uh, the Apostle Paul says. And so there's sort of a theological um, understanding called uh, antinomianism. Long word, I know. But I'll just, I'll just tell you, antinomianism, the prefix, anti means against. Um, it's sort of like in the root Greek word of, of uh, anarchy. Um, it's against law. And there are some people out there, it's kind of a new trend within some churches, um, to, to uh, be anti-law. And that's not biblical. It absolutely is not biblical uh, to be against God's law. Why would God give his law in the first place? Um, it has a purpose. And so we are not to be haters of God's law. And I'll just um, leave that part in the rearview mirror of notes. But I want to say I am not an, um, at all um, antinomian in my theology. And you shouldn't be either. So there's a key question that's asked. It's a good one um, right here, but it's the wrong one. It kind of needs to be asked. Um, but, you know, I taught in the past. My wife is a teacher, too, and she'll tell you that good teachers, they always sort of lead their students to not asking good questions, but asking the right questions. And so what Jesus does is they, you know, they come to him with a question and he kind of doesn't really answer it. He sort of, um, he kind of answers what they should be asking him. They come to him about fasting and he, he shoots a rocket up into the air off, you know, it's like NASA's space coast. And he says he's the bridegroom. I mean, uh, when I was taught kind of how to preach in school, um, there's kind of the term of, of you want to have like a, a, a gentle takeoff with a sermon. I really have tried to, to keep this sermon gentle with our ascent to 30,000 feet. Uh, but it's a little difficult with verse 33 because it's not a, a subtle takeoff. They ask him a question and Jesus just straight up says, like a rocket, NASA propulsion, you know, the propulsion system rocket engine. This thing is going to ascend at like speeds of a bazillion miles per hour. I mean, he just drops the bomb and says, I'm the bridegroom. That's crazy. Um, <laughs> like to start with that, um, because I'm going to tell you in the Old Testament, it's about uh, about 30 or 40 times. The bridegroom is a term that's used. It's used in every case, every single case it's used for God. Okay, so when Jesus says, I am the bridegroom, he's, he's right there claiming to be deity. Like he is claiming to be one with God, like in essence, one with God. And um, 
I tell you, in the Jewish mindset, like that, that blows your mind. Um, they they would have been wait what like we came to you for for a question on fasting and and you're telling us you're the bridegroom, and he just goes from that into his uh, his parables. He's going to tell two parables and it's going to be shocking. Um, but this is basically what what um, Jesus is doing here. He's just he's going to say I'm here. I'm the bridegroom. I'm the bridegroom. What you've been waiting for in the Old Testament. I'm him. What's interesting, though, is that um, in this understanding of the bridegroom, um, there's not actually any, there's nothing to do with the Messiah in, in this term. So Jesus is saying he's the bridegroom, but he's, he's more than saying that he's Messiah, he's saying he's God. He's God. And uh, C.S. Lewis said it best. C.S. Lewis uh, one of the greatest Christian writers, one of them, of all time. C.S. Lewis said that really you have just three, three decisions with Jesus. Um, you've got the decision to think he was a liar, which means that Jesus knew full well that what he was saying every time he taught, every, everything he did was a lie. Or, C.S. Lewis says, the second option is that he's a lunatic, like crazy. And um, that's in the understanding that Jesus, in, in this premise of, of being a lunatic or crazy, that, that C.S. Lewis is saying, well, like Jesus believed that he was God. He obviously wasn't, um, but uh, he thought he was, and so he's crazy. Or, C.S. Lewis chose the third option, I do too. The third choice is that Jesus is God. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he really was God, very God. He really was the Son of God. And I believe that Jesus was absolutely, positively um, the righteous Son of God, perfect in every way. So their question is about fasting. And uh, Matthew is going to... um, talk about associations and they're going to kind of basically try to drag Jesus into the mud saying, Hey, like, you know, this is kind of crazy, but you're hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. Um, But what is kind of crazy is that John the Baptist's own people, his followers are siding with the Pharisees, which they weren't in agreement at any point um, under the ministry of John the Baptist, but, in this context, they seem to kind of, some of them have kind of gone with the Pharisees to go ask this question, which is kind of concerning. Um, and uh, they're going to bring up Jesus' association, yet, you know, this is what hypocrisy does all the time. I might call you out for, for, for your associations, who you hang out with but maybe I'm not really thinking about who I associate or hang out with. And John the Baptist's disciples are hanging out with the Pharisees, which is really concerning. Um, so I want to say to you with every question, questions are a good thing. I love questions. Um, and I'm okay. I think God's okay with doubt too. Um, as long as as it's, it's it's doubt with with a grain of faith. Um, 
it's okay to struggle with depression and and to be wrestling with that. It's okay to have questions. You don't have all the answers. It's okay to have some doubt. Thomas did. Lots of people have doubt. I have doubt all the time. Um, but we always put our feet back onto the faith that we stand upon. And I'm just saying, God, I want to bring peace to your heart. God can handle your questions. God can handle your doubts. He can handle anything you bring to him. He's God. The thing to keep in mind, he might ask you some questions. He might ask you um, for answers um, to where where you're coming for. So brace yourself. Um, Personally, I'm just glad that Jesus loves us at our worst. Um, Jesus loves us at our worst. Because if Jesus can love us at our worst, the next logical conclusion is that Jesus, he can love us at our best, right? So he loves us whether we do anything for him. God is love. He's, he loves us uh, unconditionally, without condition strings attached. His acceptance and love for us is, is always there for us. If Jesus can love us at our worst, I promise you that he can love us at our, at our best. Um, so let's get to verse 34. And Jesus said to them, Can you make the wedding guests for, for a fast? Um, can you make them fast while the bridegroom is with them? And uh, this was kind of ironic. It wasn't planned. Uh, but Lori and I were at a wedding um, this weekend for some friends of ours in Sanford, Florida. Uh, drove the 300 miles to go enjoy a, a wedding. And I got to tell you, like with me preaching on Sunday, kind of about a wedding type of atmosphere, I so wanted to ask the bride, um, you know, uh, you know, can I can I ask the people at the wedding if they're fasting? You know, she's friends of ours, so she she would laugh at it. But um, I just so wanted to just ask some questions of, can I can I like give them a hard time? What you're not fasting at a wedding? And uh, there's some humor to that. And, and I'm just saying that you know that, that I'm trying to strike at the issue, and that it's it's absurd. It's completely absurd. We had the best time at this wedding. It was like. Um, the green side is Albanian, and they dressed up, and they had all this like dancing and like crazy. I mean, they da- we danced the night away. It was it was so much fun, but it's a celebration, right? And that's something we need to keep in mind: is that Jesus with his disciples, after a millennia of time, the bridegroom is here. This is a time to celebrate. There's a time for everything, and this certainly isn't a time for fasting. It's a time of celebration, of joy. Um, there's no obligation. It, it's, it's just you let loose, and it's wonderful. It was wonderful, too. It, this was our first wedding that we were at since uh, COVID began. So, I mean, I hadn't been in, in that big of a, a group of people since COVID. I mean, it was just, I had to pinch myself. Is this really happening? There's hundreds of people without masks, and we're just sort of like, enjoying dinner and dancing and i mean it was wonderful you know and uh so anyway i think this question has sort of uh some karen tones 
Um, you know, the, the saying, don't be a Karen. Um, yeah, this question is kind of a downer at, at just a time that is an ascent, a celebration, a positive time. Uh, so verse 34. Now, um, there's some prescriptions of what the law says on the issue of fasting. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quickly unpackage this. So in what God has said about the law, God said that the nation of Israel was to fast once per year, annually. Does anybody know what that holiday was? The one time a year to fast that everybody was required to fast? It's Yom Kippur. It's the Day of Atonement. So on Yom Kippur, all Jews in first century Israel were called to fast. In terms of God's law that we're talking about that some people hate, that was the only requirement for fasting. Everything else was voluntary, which means that nobody could tell you when to fast, how to fast, why to fast. You could be in the synagogue and there could be a rabbi and he says, you know, um, so-and-so is sick. Let's, let's, you know, pray for him and maybe let's fast. But that, again, is voluntary. Nobody has to, um, but they might be called to fast. So everything was voluntary, um, just with ex- exception of the one requirement that you fast once a year at Yom Kippur. Well, let's look at the text in verse 34, and it says that um, John the Baptist, and, the, and in particular the Pharisees, Luke points this out, the Pharisees were fasting often. They're fasting over and over and over again. In fact, um, this, is, this is about the law, but... Um, the problem with the Pharisees is that they were they were misinterpreting God's God's word. They were misinterpreting. They were there's there's an interpretation for an interpretation for an interpretation. They had taken what God had given as as some laws and they had made hundreds of them in addition to what God gave. Um so uh, this was one of the things they added to uh, God's word about was that um, they made it actually a requirement, the Pharisees did in Jesus' time, that the um, that Jesus and everybody in society, they were supposed to fast twice a week. Now, that's a pretty radical change to go from fasting once a year to fasting now twice a week. Um, could any of you do that? I, I mean... That's that's quite a commitment as a church to say, if I were to say, hey, I'm calling us all to fast on Tuesday and Thursday, so now you only get to eat on, on the other five days. Um, that's quite a drastic change. And um, they weren't voluntarily asking you. They were intimidating people to fast twice a week. Um and this is why the question comes up. And I think it, it has a, more to do with Matthew, um, that they, they are angry and they want to have a question to ask Jesus uh, to bring to him. So fasting was a major expression in the first century of Orthodox Judaism uh, during Jesus' day. Uh, if you want to read a little bit more on fasting, you can see Luke 18, 9 through 14. Um, and it was said that the Pharisees fasted often. Um, 
So the question, though, that they should have been asking, now, if the law uh, was given once per year, um, and it's given, or the Pharisees are doing it often, uh, what would your conclusions about the Pharisees be? Um, mine is just a lot of zealousness. Like, they were zealous, but maybe a little too overdriven, kind of like A-type personality a little bit more, maybe a little uptight. Um, the question, though, that they should have been asking was, if Jesus says, I'm the bridegroom, what would your next question be? Really? Are you the bridegroom? I think that would be a reasonable question, not really one of fasting. Um, and um, this was gold. I, I, I began sitting down um, studying for this passage, and I asked myself the question. I was like, so what, what is the evidence that Jesus did fast? Did he fast? Did Jesus teach on it? Did he practice it? There are some verses that talk about Jesus upholding the Jewish festivals, the celebrations. There's evidence that Jesus fasted during Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But the best one that I came to was thinking, and it was like, aha. Just a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Jesus fasting 40 days and 40 nights in the desert when he was tempted by the devil. Now, they're asking him, like, you know, why don't you and your followers fast 40 days? I've never fasted 40 days, have you? Like, I guess the thought I thought about was, you know, cut the guy a break. You know, 40 days, a 40-day fast. In fact, John the Baptist's disciples, I don't know, I just had to, like, shake my head a little bit because... When Jesus is baptized by John and a voice comes down from heaven and says, this is my son in, the womb, in whom I am well pleased, um, Jesus goes off from baptism into the desert for 40 days. And so some, like most of the followers would have known where he went from baptism. He went right in straight into fasting for 40 days and nights. Exceptional. Um, Matthew 6, uh, 16 through 18 Jesus models fasting. He shows us how to do it. Um, so, and this is in um, the Sermon on the Mount. His most famous sermon, Jesus is, is preaching uh, a segment apart about fasting. So absolutely Jesus believed and taught his disciples fasting. I think where we see the difference between um, the Pharisaic model of fasting in Jesus's is that the Pharisee was publicly fasting. They were letting everybody know about it. Um, there's, there's, um, this is, this really crazy, this blew my mind, but in, in, um, in reading some of the history, the, the Pharisees were even like powdering their face to make their face look more pale so that when they were in public, someone would go, whoa, like, what happened to you? You look really sickly. Like, you, you look terrible. And they could say, oh, I was fasting. <laughs> Rough week, Tuesday. Whew. Just had my lunch, no pun intended. Um, so, you know, the thing is that um, they were doing it publicly. Now, in Matthew 6, uh, 
16 through 18, Jesus is going to teach how you should fast, but do it rightly. And he says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the Pharisees do, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. And that's what it's all about. It's just sort of like humble brag, pat on the shoulder. Um, Truly, I say to you, they they will receive their award, verse 17, but when you, and Jesus wants to differentiate, Jesus says, but when you, and he's talking to Christ's followers, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Basically, practice good hygiene. Make yourself, when you're fasting, look even better than you feel. Basically, don't let on the appearance that you're you're fasting. He wanted them to pretend like they're at their best, you know, to uh, to practice hygiene. Um, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And this is the differentiation, the big one between G- Jesus's idea of fasting, what he taught, and the Pharisees, is is really those entering into your your quiet secret closet and fasting not before men, not broadcasting it, not putting on your status on Facebook, not letting everybody know about it. It was really just doing it, um, unplugging, you know, from the Internet, just doing it and and not letting everybody know. Um, And your father who sees in secret, he will reward you. And... I love this verse. I always have. It's in the Old Testament, but um, it says that the eyes of the Lord rove to and fro throughout the earth, looking for those whose hearts are wholly devoted to him. That he is looking over the expanse of the earth, looking for those that that have a heart like David, a, a man after God's own heart. God knows your heart. God knows your heart. He knows you better than you and I know ourselves. He knows our heart. And so Jesus, with this question, he kind of is going to go from what was a position of defense with the question they were asking Jesus, trying to put him on defense. And Jesus is going to go on the offense. And he's going to really teach what they should be thinking about. And it's not about fasting. So verse 35, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken from them and they will fast in those days. Now I talked about the wedding, how it's a celebration and you know, man, this like this really, um, this, this verse like really resonated with me understanding that Jesus is kind of at the beginning of his ministry. It's not at the end. It's not in the middle. He's in the first quarter of his ministry He's still calling disciples, um, which is amazing. But the amazing thing is this, in verse 35, Jesus understands that he has been born to die from the beginning. He is, this is kind of like a prophetic glimpse into the final week of his ministry where he's going to be captured, he's going to be arrested, he's going to be tried unfairly, he's going to be crucified all within just... 24 hours. And verse 35 says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. He knows he's not here to stay. 
that he will, at the end of three years, um, he will be taken from them. And then they will fast in those days. Or in, yeah, in those days. And so the understanding is, is this final Passion Week that he already knows um, that his, his life is, is to be one of, of being the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. But man, I, I mean, I just have never seen it this way that Jesus knew. Um, he knew from the start. Um, it's just amazing. It's amazing to me, though, that you know the bridegroom has come. They even have God, very God, right in front of them. And I've had moments in my life of spiritual blindness, um, and and I can understand this, but it still kind of is surprising in a sense, of just how immense spiritual blindness can be sometimes. Just how deep it can be. Because uh, the people are going to um, have Jesus right in front of them, and some of them are not going to come to faith. Um, but the passionate heart of the Jew is waiting faithfully. Um, you know, come Lord Jesus, come. They were waiting for Messiah to, to come. And, you know, there will be, in the same case in our days, in the latter days, there will be many who, who miss him too. Because, in, in a sense, some people are looking and some people are not. Um, the analogy that Jesus gives, though, is, uh, is brilliant. He's going to talk now about um, a garment and a wineskin. And the comparison, um, let's see. there's a primary point that Jesus is, is trying to make with a lot of his imagery and the analogy, and that's that all of the righteous rituals that were practiced by John the Baptist and his disciples, the Pharisees, um, are completely out, of te- uh, out of, completely out of touch with reality. And that's kind of the sense of like asking about fasting when you have the bridegroom in front of you, asking about fasting when it's a it's a celebration. Um, I thought about um, I'm going to read a quote from R.C. Sproul, who passed away a couple years ago. Um, he um, has a seminary in Orlando, and this quote I I just thought it was really great. Uh, It says, nowhere in the Old Testament, beloved, does the Bible refer to the Messiah's bridegroom. That imagery, it just isn't there. The bridegroom in the Old Testament is God. And the bride is the nation of Israel. But in the New Testament, the bridegroom is the Son of God, and the church is his bride. So again, Jesus is claiming more than Messiahship here. When he refers to himself as the bridegroom, he is saying, I am the son of God. I am here. In context to this passage, uh, and while Jesus is here, he's bringing to you and I the kingdom. And as long as the bridegroom is in your presence, this is the time you people should be celebrating, not fasting, because the kingdom has come and I am in your midst. So that's the idea, really, behind um, behind how people should have seen um, Jesus is coming. 
and they did not. R.C. Sproul goes on and he says, Oh, so you mean to say that we are not always going to have the bridegroom amongst us. And that's true. Uh, We are waiting for him to come back. Yes, the day is coming when the bridegroom will be snatched away from you. He, Jesus, is obviously referring to his own execution, departure from this planet. And then he, um, Jesus says, then my friends will be the time for fasting. Um, I thought in context to the time when you're going to really feel in your gut the need for fasting um, is going to be definitely uh, Saturday after Good Friday. No one wants to talk too much often about Saturday, but I think Saturday would have just been miserable. Like, there's not even words. Um, I don't know if you've ever lost someone. I have. The hardest thing in the world um, is, of course, losing someone, but that next day the sun comes up and you're thinking, is this just a dream? And you realize it's not like and and you're just in disbelief it, it's just difficult and this is the sense of what Jesus is saying is that in that day they will they will fast and um it it's difficult, but for this time in the Gospels, he's here with us, and that's what we should be mindful. A verse that came to mind uh kind of leapt to my mind as I was studying was psalm sixteen eleven It says, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are all the pleasures forevermore. And that's the sense that, you know, as bad as life gets, as hard as it gets, um, the beautiful thing is that his presence, his presence is here and we can have joy through throughout anything we go through. Um, there was a men's breakfast a couple months ago, and, and I just really felt like the enemy was just like trying to just really rile me up and kind of, I woke up kind of almost like it was a black cloud over my head. And, you know, I just had this thought and I was like, I'm going, I'm going to men's breakfast. This has got to be a good, a good time with the guys. I just knew it because I knew that Satan didn't want me here. You know, he didn't want me there at at the breakfast. So it's like, all right, and you know what? I'm not driving, I'm walking. I'm going to walk and every step forward is just going to be like just enjoying going to see the men because I know the enemy doesn't want me to. And um, I just encourage you with that. Sometimes when you're in those ruts where you just are like, I'm not going. Go! That's the time to pray. That's the time to worship. That's the time to... There's a verse in... uh, There's a passage in the Old Testament. It says that... um, Put on the garments of praise. Put off the spirit of heaviness. For the the gladness of, of his oil is in your lamps. And we are to... It's like putting... It's like taking off your your one set of dirty clothes and putting on a new righteous robe that is sprinkled with his blood. Like put on a new clothes, change, put on and put off. Put off the old the old flesh, the old nature, 
and put on his precious garments. It's a putting on and a putting off. It's the best time in the world is to worship him when you don't want to. And Lori kind of alluded a little bit to it, but man, there was so much going on this week. Everything's just falling apart. Like, I mean, it was like, and I just knew it. I was like, I'm not going to let this discourage me. God has something for us here. He's got something that he wants to do um, in our midst. And, uh, I, you know, we've got to press in in those times. So for those who have ears to hear, um, this is really where we need to uh, just get quickly to uh, the, the, um, the garments and, and the, uh, the, the analogy of the old wineskins. Um, Jesus actually, uh, he pretty much tells us for us, which is really unique in, in a parable, but he's going to even explain it for us. Um, so let's just look at it again. And they said to him, verse 33, uh, the disciples fast often and offer prayers, um, but yours eat and drink. Jesus says to them, can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? So Jesus is going to give context to everything he's going to say from that point on. And he's going to say, basically, the bridegroom is here. He's doing what Joshua uh, yeah, Joshua um, sa- says, um, behold, I'm doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? There is a, a spring of living water that is coming up out of the ground in, in a desert and a wasteland. And uh, this is the idea of what, what is happening here, is that Jesus is doing a new thing. Um, the, the, he's going to fulfill the law. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken from them and they'll fast in those days. Now, this is the parable. He says, um, no one, no one, um, in verse 36, no one tears a piece from a new garment. So there's the interpretation right there. Like, no one does this, is what Jesus is saying. Um, So why would you, is is his question. Um, No one does this and puts an old garment on. like is trying to they're trying to salvage an old garment that otherwise you would throw in the trash i i don't know you probably have maybe some clothes that you have kept over the years i've got this wonderful shirt um that yeah lori's shaking her head um lori has asked me to retire it um so many times like just throw it out and my response is always the same i just say to her it has still more mileage. Like, if, you know, what's what's wrong with this shirt? But, you know, anyway. Um, but, yeah, you know, this is the sense is that sometimes there's stuff to let it go. And uh, that is the case here. Um, it says, too, that if he does, he will tear the new piece. Uh, like, basically, hey, and I wore these jeans, too, for you, is uh, my holy jeans. Um, I had thought sort of about um, the the sense of like asking the the bride at the uh, wedding this weekend, can I cut like a piece off your dress just to patch up my my pants? I was so tempted to do that, but I wouldn't dare. Um, but that's the absurdity: is that who would cut off a piece off of a beautiful bride dress? 
And that's what Jesus is saying, essentially, is like taking a beautiful new garment and trying to stitch it on like old, like as a patch. And anybody knows, too, like the materials are different. So you put it in the wash, especially 100% cotton, that thing's going to shrink and it's going to pull and tear. And Jesus is more or less saying, you know, dispose of it. So no one puts, and uh, this is his other analogy is verse 37. And no one puts new wine into an old wineskin. If he does, the new wine will burst and will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And this was really a neat thought that I had. But so Jesus is, he, he, we were talking about this this morning. Um, Jesus was there in the beginning of Genesis 1. He, he's the Logos. Like he spoke his word. Uh, 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 he was the word um, in the beginning and he carried out as God's spoken word the creation like everything that you see and um, I had this thought though I was thinking about it and I was like amazing that some of the things he's talking about about fermentation these gases like chemistry the compounds, uh, the the you know the chemistry chart, all these components will make these reactions. I thought about the animal skin of stretching it and like, you know, Jesus has the patent for these things that we're talking about. He created it. You know, these were his his imagination, his thoughts of of you know yeah let's like. Be able to, you know, they'll be able to like stretch it out, and um, it's just amazing that the Creator is going to explain to them some of the forces of creation. He, he's the patent author, original of this um, this stuff. Um, it just, you know, it it's mind it's mind blowing what what he's done. So this is the thing: is that with with a new, uh, with an old wineskin, it's sort of like uh, one of my earliest childhood memories was to shake up a can of, of soda and, and shake it up so much that, I mean, it's going to go everywhere. And I mean, I remember just being a small kid and learning of what, like, what this can do. And it's that sense of like, you know, a pop can is made out of aluminum. So, I mean, the pressure and stuff it's not exactly expanding, right? Like it's it's not like a balloon in terms of its its shape and consistency. So I mean, it's going to go everywhere. That's the exact kind of idea behind this wine skin, is that the wine skin can't contain the pressure, so it's just going to explode. It's like you got to take a step back. If you're putting new new uh, old or new wine into an old wine skin it's going to be a disaster. And Jesus is talking about this of, you know, the the old former system is is not going to look as it does in his kingdom. He's starting something new and fresh. And um it it's powerful. Now, I thought too about how there's containers and um the wine skins 
in in our understanding, I mean, I wish I could go on eBay and bring a wine skin. Instead, I had to kind of make some clay um, to kind of give that that feel of moldable, shapeable, um, ply, pliable um, consistency. But wine skins back they go as far back as the second and third century, and uh, um, wineskins were found all throughout the ancient world, even as far away as China, uh, which is remarkable. Um, but they didn't just contain wineskins; they also contained uh, like milk and anything liquid, pretty much. So you can imagine, though, like a wineskin that's carrying milk or or butter or like different liquids like inside how do you clean that wine skin out over time this old wine skin like you're going to want to throw it away because the use um it, i mean it's going to be terrible um just the the you can't clean the inside of it um and i began thinking about containers and you know my mind came to shiloh um, and my mind, uh, that was a tent and a tabernacle, uh, that started with Joshua and, uh, it, they met for 500 years in the tabernacle, which is Shiloh. And then they built the first temple that was by King Solomon. And then they built, um, the second temple, which is, uh, is going to be the one that Jesus, uh, saw in his day. Um, and that temple was destroyed. Um, but I began thinking about other vessels that were used for his use. Um, there's the rod that Moses had um, that had the anointing of God's spirit, the rod of God, it was called in Exodus. There's watering wells, broken cisterns. Um, these are these are used as uh, cisterns that, that were to contain water, but... Um, they were broken. Um, that was used as a description of Israel. There's jars of clay, which are just everyday use um, vessels, but they are used to contain his treasure in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. Um, there, oh, I love this analogy, and it's, it's John 15, that uh, he is the vine and we are the branches. Um, that apart from him, we can do nothing. This is said over 10 times in 10 verses that um, we are to abide in him. And the idea behind abiding the abode, uh, dwelling and remaining in him, this vine and branches, is the same idea, the same wording of, of a tent. That it's, you know, our abiding is to be dwelling in his, in his presence, like in a tent. And um, that's kind of the idea of the temple, too, is it's a, it's a building. People will come, um, but it's a building in which the Lord dwells. Um, I began thinking, though, about, um, though, uh, in terms of Shiloh, um, Lori and I went there. And these are some of the photos here of Shiloh, uh, where the, the tabernacle once stood for 500 years. Um, we had a rare opportunity. It's in the West Bank, um, and most tourists don't get to go into the West Bank. But you see that hole that is there? Um, 
that's the erosion mark that over 500 years of erosion, that's where one of the pillars for the tent once stood. And it was really amazing to be able to put our hands and to touch and to feel um, the, this, these tent holes that, that were literally where the presence of God fell down for 500 years and communed with his people. And we're not just talking like, you know, a couple names you wouldn't have ever heard of. Like, we're talking Joshua. Joshua was there at this location here. Um, we think of Caleb and Samson and Hannah and Deborah and Gideon. Um, I mean, these were, were patriarchs of the faith. Um, and so they were there at Shiloh. Um, but, you know, a bigger point to make um, is really one that even greater than Shiloh. It, and I want you to realize this. Even greater than Shiloh, as cool as it was as an experience to go there where the presence of God once fell, is he resides in you and me today. We're his temple. And we shouldn't ever take that for granted. He literally dwells in temple hearts, which is yours, yours to give. And again, we get back to just this clay idea of temples, and you are, you're it. He doesn't want to dwell in a building. He wants to dwell in you. He wants to dwell in me. And I need to examine myself and think about being pliable, being flexible, that, that I can't be an old wineskin. Um, Luke is the only gospel writer that is going to um, use this expression. Um, but he says, Luke says that the old is better in verse 39. And Luke is not saying that the old is better. It was a saying in his day that there were some people out there that they, they wanted to just keep their old wine skin with old wine and they were really just kind of stubborn and obstinate and, and just kind of not wanting to give God any part of their life. And Luke is saying about that that that's absurd. Um, that's absurd that a person would want to drink old wine in an old wineskin, you want to drink the best wine. You want to drink uh, the the drink. You want to drink from His Spirit. You want Him. You don't want the old traditions and letters of the law. Um, and so that's what where we're at is that gone away are temples and buildings, and we're in the the era of His church, and He wants to come and reside in you. And that should just shock us to a, to a sense. Like, what, how could he dwell in me? I mean, if we, if we have any, any ounce of humility, like, why would he want anything to do with me? Like, why would he want me, like, to come in my life? Like, why would he want to use me? I'm nothing. You know, apart from him, we're nothing. We can do nothing. And... um 
that's where the rubber really hits the road. Is that today, I, I just want you to examine yourself. That you would consider um, coming up front here and taking one of these um, bags of clay. Um, I would, Lord, I found this the hard way, but I would challenge you to um, put gloves on because the the color kind of comes off on your fingers, especially if you're working with kids. Um, but maybe put some gloves on. But mold it and shape it. Maybe shape it into the shape of a cross or something that comes to mind. Maybe you just want to kind of mold and shape it into just a little clay um, clay piece that will, you know, remind you of are you are you flexible? Are you are you moldable, shapeable? You know, are does does God have? This is what lordship's all about. Does he have all of you? And it's okay. We're all works in progress. It's okay for us to not have arrived and not have everything together. I don't. I don't pretend to. Um, but I want you to have openness to ask of God, what do you want to do with me? What do you want to do in my life? You know, because if none of us have passed on, God still has a reason for us here. And I would just want to have you think about that relationship between you and the potter. And I want you to pray and to ask just God if you're if you're wanting to. Nobody has to come up here. This isn't like pharisaical fasting. Nobody has to come here. This is voluntary. But if you want to, in the days ahead, I just want you to consider yourself in relationship to the potter of being the clay. Is he able to work in you? And and just being open to that, um, being what we want to be is soft in the hand of the potter, and that does take work. I was kind of playing around with this a little bit the um, earlier, and this thing actually is quite hard. Um, but as you're working into it, it gets softer. There's other things too where you can add water to it and kind of make it more pliable. Um, I pray that God has your heart. And there's areas in my life that, you know, I'm not as pliable as I once used to be. When I was a younger believer in Christ, I just had a really, um, I would do anything and go anywhere God wanted me to go. And that's a true confession. And I'm just saying that um, as I've gotten older now a little bit, it's sort of like... um, I used to like camping, now I like glamping, the the glamorous side of camping, right? I don't want to sleep on the floor, I want to sleep kind of maybe in an RV or like a, a bed of some sort, nice, warm, or comfortable. Um, I'm less pliable as I get older. But I, I don't want to limit God, because that's he's the potter and I'm the clay, and he should be able to do with me whatever he wants to make in me and and I can't I shouldn't shut myself off to that and I pray you don't either and as you get this clay too um, I just want to say that there might even be areas of your life that you're not happy about that 
Maybe it's dreams unfulfilled. Maybe it's things that you want to see happen and they have not happened yet. And that's okay. That's okay that, you know, that the clay's not a finished product yet. It's not in the kiln and and in its final form. But I want you to consider what God does want to do and whether you like it or not to process that maybe there's some things that we just got to let go that maybe it's just not what he has for us maybe it's it's not now but it's to come in the future maybe it's just not yet Um, and that can be sometimes saying goodbye to a dream something you wanted to see happen and sometimes it's just stepping into it again with faith renewed that as clay in the hand of the potter so are you in the hand Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.